You're listening to a new sermon series from Sojourn Church Carlisle, entitled All in the Family. Over the next few weeks, we'll be sharing how to cultivate a strong relationship with God through managing our finances, as well as maintaining strong relational dynamics in both familial and non-familial contexts. We hope that this series will give a clear vision and a much deeper appreciation of how God is calling each of us to become faithful stewards of our finances, of our families, and of our friendships. You will not surely die. What had God actually said? Again, going back to Genesis 2, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And Eve knew that as well. So Satan cast doubt about the truthfulness of God's word. Satan cast doubt about the truthfulness of God's word, implying, at least implying, that God is a liar. Thirdly, under the method of temptation, Satan calls into question the goodness of God. Satan calls into question the goodness of God making it seem that God wants to deny Adam and Eve something good, a good gift. Satan says, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Why had God actually placed that tree in the garden? Probably as a test. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But though God himself had placed that tree in the garden, he had also prohibited his image bearers from eating its fruit. You shall not eat of this tree. Because doing so would indeed open Adam and Eve's eyes so that they would know good and evil. But such knowledge was reserved for God alone and was not by any means intended for his human image bearers. So God is indeed good. And his goodness includes protecting his image bearers from disaster by prohibiting that which belongs to God only from entering into the human domain. Divinely placed limitations on us human creatures It's always for our good. And rebellion against these limitations always courts disaster. So summary, so far, summary of the temptation. We have the tempter, who is Satan, the tempted, who is Eve, and the method of temptation, deceiving Eve by attacking the content of God's word, the truthfulness of God's word, and the goodness of God toward his image bearers. So still on A, we've looked at the temptation. Let's now go to the fall. The fall. Number one, Satan sets the trap of temptation. Satan sets the trap of temptation. And Eve, being deceived, falls into the trap. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, 
She took of its fruit and ate it and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. In one sense, Eve saw exactly what she should have seen. Going back to Genesis 2.9, in planting the trees in the garden, God had lavishly created them. Every tree was pleasant to the sight. So Eve saw rightly, this fruit was a delight to her eyes. God had lavishly created every tree such that it was good for food. And Eve saw it exactly that way. It would be a tasty, filling meal for her. And the one tree was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Eve saw it as a desired source of wisdom. So in one sense, Eve saw as she should have seen. Again, the problem was not with the magnificent trees in general and the particular tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was not the problem. The problem was that God had denied his image bearers access to the fruit of that one tree, but Eve took it and ate it anyway. And then she gave some to Adam, who was with her. So the fall of Eve was this origination and rising of a desire for a knowledge that God had specifically forbidden. So Eve was deceived by Satan's serpent. But such deceit did not minimize or eliminate her culpability before God. And Pastor James will show us this next week in the remaining part of Genesis 3. Number two, according to 1 Timothy 2.14, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and fell into transgression, rebelled against God. So the fall of Eve and the fall of Adam are different collapses into desecration. Whereas Eve was tricked, Adam was not deceived. He fell with his eyes wide open. He knew exactly what he was doing. Importantly, God holds Adam not only culpable for his own sin of disobedience, God also holds Adam accountable, culpable for the sin of the entirety of the human race. That's you and me. Paul in Romans 5.12 says this, Sin came into the world through one man, who is Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam's fall means that we are fallen in him. Number three, Adam's fall means that we are fallen in him. Desecration. 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 We'll speak more about this later in the series. So number four, conclusion then to the temptation and the fall, conclusion to our narrative. Verse seven, then the eyes of Adam and Eve were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Look at the particular desecration here. The fall from naked and not ashamed to naked and ashamed. They were naked before the fall. They were naked after the fall. 
but they saw themselves differently. They saw themselves wrongly because they could not contain, they could not process the knowledge of good and evil. Such knowledge belongs to God and God alone. And image bearers are not God. And then they engage in this futile attempt to cover over their sin. Point A, the temptation and the fall. Point B, sin is a deadly, serious matter for many reasons. Sin is a deadly, serious matter for numerous reasons. Sin is perverse. Sin is perverse. It is against a holy, righteous, truth-telling, good God. And in the case of human-to-human sin, it is against God's very own image bearers. Sin is perverse. Sin is extensive. It infects every aspect of our human nature. Our minds, our thinking, our reasoning, our rationality infected with sin. Our emotions, our sentiments, our feelings infected with sin. Our decision-making capacity, our volition, our will infected with sin. Our motivations, our purposing infected with sin. Our bodies infected with sin. Every aspect. There's not an aspect of human nature that escapes the corrupting influence of sin. That does not mean that we're as evil or sinful as we possibly could be. But every area of our life is impacted by it. Sin is extensive. Sin is also intensive. Nothing good in us exists by which we can move toward God. There is nothing in us by which we can make a move toward God. The leopard cannot change its spots. We cannot change our sinful orientation. We can't take our self-centeredness and move toward God-centeredness on our own. We can't go from desecration to sacredness on our own. It's impossible because sin is so intensive. Sin is also destructive. Sin is destructive. It seriously compromises our relationship with God. So we live in guilt and shame and fear and mistrust God. It seriously damages our relationships with others, parents, spouse, children, other family members, friends, colleagues, church members and church leaders, employers, employees, neighbors. Sin seriously damages our relationship with others. It seriously mars our own knowledge of and expression of ourselves. We're characterized by self-deception, grandiose delusions. We think we're big things, debilitating limitations of which we are usually unaware, incoherence within ourselves. And sin is the sovereignty of the self. Sin is the sovereignty of self. It places us at the center of all things exactly and uniquely where God is supposed to be. We place ourselves. Though we are to have no other gods before God, sin enthrones us as gods in place of God. Sin is a deadly, serious matter. See 
The good news is that sin can be forgiven. Sin can only be forgiven through the salvation offered to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news that the Son of God, 2,000 years ago, became Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect, holy life, fully obeying, never rebelling against God the Father. He died on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin as our substitute, and then was raised from the dead, showing that he has achieved victory over our sin. Thus, salvation is through repentance and faith we embrace this gospel, and God declares us not guilty. God declares us completely righteous in Jesus. God removes our corrupt nature. He gives us a new gift, a gift of a new nature, a new identity, so that instead of desecration, there's holiness and uprightness and beauty and sacredness. That's the good news. For us followers of Jesus, point D, confession of sin should be an everyday practice. For us followers of Jesus, confession of sin should be an everyday practice. Confession is the act of humbly and honestly admitting our sins, which should be named specifically to God. The act of humbly and honestly admitting our sins, which should be named specifically to God. Some examples. This morning, I'm going through the motions of worshiping you, Lord. Father, I don't really trust you to provide me a job or to protect my children or to get me out of this messy situation. I don't really trust you. God, I'm really questioning your goodness because like Eve wrestled with in when Satan was tempting her, I feel like you're holding back some blessing from me. We humbly and honestly admit our sins, which are named specifically to God. When we sin against others, confession is the act of humbly and honestly admitting our sins, which should be named specifically both to God and to those others whom we've harmed. For example, I responded to you with anger, frustration, and bitterness, which was a sinful response. I did not love you as I should, but I avoided you and tried to cover over my sin. I sinned against you by misrepresenting you and your view before others. But how do we know our sins to confess? How do we know which sins to confess? We expose our lives to the Word of God in conjunction with the work of the Spirit of God, and we will become aware and sorry for our sin, and we will be prompted to confess and repent of it. Expose our lives to the Word of God in conjunction with the work of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, and we will become aware of and sorry for our sins, and prompted to confess and repent of them. But we need to do the work, the serious work, to know what sin or what sins were committed. 
I've done a confession to a group of people, right? A group in general and then specific individuals and asked for their forgiveness. And they granted that forgiveness. And then some of them responded back to me, if I've done anything wrong to offend or hurt you, you just let me know. Now, why do I have to do the work for you? You do the work for yourself. Expose your life to the word of God in conjunction with the work of the spirit of God. And then let's have a conversation. Then articulate those specific sins humbly and honestly. And we can get along. We can move on. Confession of sin is always oriented toward God. Remember David's prayer against you, you only have I sinned, Lord? Confession of sin is always oriented toward God and often oriented toward others. God is first and foremost the one to whom our confession must be made. We bring our sins into the light of the one who is holy and just and merciful and gracious, and God extends the forgiveness to us for our confessed sins. So confession of sin should be a regular occurrence, at minimum daily, like we pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, Confession of sin should be a daily, minimally daily exercise, more often as we sin throughout the day. We all are sinners. In all our wisdom and age and experience and practice and maturity. So we all need to constantly confess our sins. And when we confess our sins, we ask for forgiveness of God, and then we trust we believe that he forgives us. 1 John 1, 9, a beautiful promise. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, which we've been talking about, honestly, humbly, admitting particularly what we've done, when we do that, God is faithful and he's just, it's right for God to forgive us because Christ has died for our sins. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and then cleanses us from all unrighteousness. This is a promise. It's not a suggestion. It's not a good idea. It's a promise that we should trust, that we should believe, that we should rely on. When we confess our sins to others, we ask their forgiveness and then we wait for them to grant it. When we confess our sins to others, we ask for forgiveness and wait for it to be granted. I broke a confidential matter with you, and I ask for your forgiveness. I lied to you, and I ask for you to forgive me. And then we pause. And then we watch for discomfort when the other person replies, ah, it, it was nothing. And then we repeat our request for forgiveness. I broke a confidential matter with you and asked for your forgiveness. I lied to you. Will you please forgive me? Wait for their answer. Encourage them to forgive. When our brothers and sisters ask us for our forgiveness, 
we mercifully forgive them wholeheartedly with our whole heart. And we celebrate the repentance and the return to kingdom life, just like the father did with the prodigal son. A heavy passage, a weighty matter of sin, a heavy sermon. Four takeaways, four takeaways. I put these in the form of questions. How can you develop a greater sensitivity to the reality of your sin and its devastating consequences? How can you develop a greater sensitivity to the reality of your sin and its devastating consequences? Now, some of you have an overly sensitive conscience. This question's not for you, okay? You're already feeling it bad, right? But for the rest of us, how can you develop a greater sensitivity to the reality of your sin and its devastating consequences? A second takeaway. How can you gain greater resolve and fight against, fight more tenaciously against sin in your life? How can you gain greater resolve and fight more tenaciously against sin in your life? Third, presently, are there any sins that you need to confess to God and or to others? Presently, are there any sins that you need to confess to God and to others? Don't wait. Take the initiative. Fourth, how can we as Sojourn Church Carlisle help one another to fight against sin and confess sin to one another? How can we as Sojourn Church Carlisle help one another to fight against sin and confess sin to one another? Four takeaways. Will you join me in prayer? Lord, your word in Genesis 3, 1 to 7 is a weighty word. It confronts us at the very heart of our self-centeredness, our rebellion, our disobedience. It exposes how this world and how we have become desecrated by sin. Lord, give us a greater, a deeper sense of our sinfulness. And when we have that, may we run more joyfully, more hopefully, more trustingly to the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that we can find actual forgiveness from you for our sins committed against you. And when we've sinned against one another, we run with hopefulness and joy and expectation to one another and confess our sins to one another. And Lord, will you give us merciful hearts, mercifully wholehearted forgiveness that we extend to others. Lord, build us into a community here at Sojourn Church Carlisle that hates sin and that confesses sin and lives in the joy of the sacredness of the cross of Jesus Christ. May it overcome our desecration. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com 
backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.